Hello again, everybody, and I am just so happy to be talking to a friend, and I think maybe one of the best writers out there. His first book literally had national acclaim, uh, and um, uh, you know he might be working on a second. We don't know. We'll talk about that down the road. He is somebody that is a brilliant lobbyist, survivor of trauma, somebody who gives back to the community. We need more people like David Crow in the world. And uh, David, thank you so much for being my guest today and again for the first time. Yeah, and you've become a real friend. And I think about you a lot. I follow you and I root for you every day. So it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. And um, let's start with the pale face lie. Again, well, one can hope when they write a book that will be as successful as this was in terms of identifying people's trauma, in terms of identifying the plight of those who live on Native American reservations and on and on. But did you think it would have the impact that it did? You know, <clears throat> I think about the childhood and, and the school on the reservation. <clears throat> and so one thing I want our listeners to know is that the schools that I went to in the 50s, 60s, were the first integrated schools on the reservation. And by that, I mean the Navajo kids that went to my school with me, their parents were boarding house school kids. So for those who don't know, back in the 30s and 40s, uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs rounded up Navajo kids, <clears throat> rounded them up, took them to boarding house schools. And what they would do is shave their heads, make them eat lye soap. And every morning they would wake up hearing, we must kill the Indian to save the man. How awful is that? I mean, gosh. It was bad. And they were punished if they ever spoke Navajo. They were punished if they ever... <clears throat> made any allusion to their own religious beliefs. <clears throat> they were worked like dogs. Um, they were basically um, abused. And, and they just were, <clears throat> they were taught that everything about them was heathen and wrong. <clears throat> and they basically had, they tried to beat the Indian out of them. <clears throat> As a slight aside, the code talkers in World War II, the people who carried the Navajo code that defeated the Japanese, <clears throat> came out of these boarding schools because no one had ever, Navajo had never been written down and not that many people could speak Navajo. You know, Navajo is fairly isolated, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah. And it created this code that was never broken. <clears throat> but my point, so those kids that were in my school were raised by boarding house kids <clears throat> that hated what the Anglos had done to them. And it made every day very, very difficult because the kids with you really, really despised you. And of course, as I grew to learn their story, I understood it. And it took me two, three years. Once you stay three years on a reservation, white people would come, go, get better jobs. No one wanted to stay. But if you lasted three years, then they bonded with you. And so by the time I left the reservation, I felt almost like an Navajo. They uh, really loved them, understand them, still love them. But um, the education system when I was there uh, was a mess. Um, 
The only white teachers you could get came to get a job for the first time, and they didn't like it because it was a difficult place, not not a lot of money. Kids had very difficult childhoods. Most of the parents still didn't speak much English, wouldn't allow it in the house. Um, You could quit at the end of ninth grade, and a lot of kids did. And um, so teaching them was difficult. Discipline was difficult, and they didn't like being around Anglo kids. And so none of this was very conducive to learning, and it wasn't a very fun atmosphere in the beginning. And that's just the only way to say it is just to say that. There's so much to unpack there. And, um, you know, and I, it, it pains me so much, one, that this, is, this happened. But two, we almost gloss over it as a society, and we shouldn't. We embrace our country, we love our country. But with that comes, the, we have to look at the warts that we have. And why did this happen? Isn't it amazing that the code talkers literally not figuratively, literally saved this country. Yes. And helped us win World War II. But yet, in our own country, they couldn't speak their own language. That Their mouths were literally washed out with soap. And many of them came home from World War II and couldn't vote. <clears throat> they weren't allowed to legally drink till 1953. <clears throat> um, they really weren't considered full citizens. <clears throat> and I was my little league coach and 4-H teacher and the son of my best friend was a code talker. And there were four or five code talkers in my little village, but they would never speak about what they did. They still considered it top secret, incredibly loyal to our our country, incredibly patriotic. Um, Their um, volunteer rate in World War II is astronomically high, like in the 90 percentile but they weren't really treated like um, good Americans at home. They weren't treated well at all. And so when I talk to my Navajo friends whose dads went through this, I like to tell them your dads, your family were the greatest of the greatest generation. 100%. Not only did they do all the sacrifice, they really got very little of the benefit. It's, it's a story that can never be told enough and they deserve incredible credit in my eyes. You look, you look at the uh, our uh, Navajo brethren that um, helped us in World War II, and you look at our Japanese brethren whose families were literally in internment camps in this country who still fought for this country. You know, it reminds me a little bit of your book, if you, if you allow me to go down this path, where you have an abusive father vis-a-vis, metaphorically speaking, the, the United States, but you still love your father, you know, much I like the code talkers and the Japanese and you, I mean, it's, it's gotta, it's really had to be tough, you know, being raised in that environment, going to school in that environment. Tell us what it was like. What was it heated? Was it, what was the classrooms like? Tell us like what that was about. Well, the thing about the classes and this is the part I think, and maybe every difficult impoverished school system has some of this. But in in our case, you had kids that came to school and that literally came because you got a meal at lunch that was a hot meal. Mm -hmm. It might be the only meal they got that was any good. 
Gotcha. They were many of them were very very poor, <clears throat> lived in homes that were still hogans, <clears throat> no running water, no electricity, um, bare minimal uh, in terms of of you know basics, <clears throat> and these kids would come <clears throat> from parents who didn't want them there, and were maybe years behind because they hadn't had the opportunities to learn good English and, you know, all that. And then you're with um, the top part of the Navajo kids. Their parents were educated, not a big number. It's a much bigger number now, but a very few of them um, were educated and their kids were exposed to all kinds of good things. And then you had these kids in the middle. So if you're a teacher, you had an almost impossible job because the the difference between the kid who was not was the least equipped to be there and the best was huge and it's interesting how racial differences even within uh the tribe work the kids that were considered smart and acted white if you will were considered apples red on the outside right. right on the inside and that was not a compliment no that's no not at all not at all so it, it was it was difficult for the teachers the other thing is when teachers came there anglo teachers um they've been told that they're entering like shangri-la you know there's nothing more pure than life on a reservation and you know this is and what they found was third world poverty, <clears throat> violence, domestic violence, alcoholism, <clears throat> and kids that just didn't want to be there. So they left as quick as they could. <clears throat> Many times they signed two years contracts and probably regretted it on the second day. <clears throat> so the turnover was huge. The few Navajo teachers <clears throat> that we had that were college educated, uh, really favored the Navajo kids. And I understood that. So if 10 Navajo kids beat you up in front of one of them, they would act like it didn't happen right. because of their, so there wasn't much good uh, that came of that system and yet it worked. And now if I flash forward to today, one of my very best friends in the world, um, who's a, uh, a woman in, who lives in Gallup, and uh, she and her husband are my really close friends. She teaches in a Navajo school system in Tehachapi, New Mexico, and she helps with special needs and learning disabilities and those sorts of things. And she could teach anywhere she wants, but she goes there to help. And I've asked her, what's the progress like from the time I was a kid? till right. That was my next question. Sure. And I have a very good comparison because Brenda's her name, just so she's an absolute saint. Um, there's still the poverty, but you're one generation, two generations removed from boarding house. That helps. Sure. So the, the parents of her students grew up like I did in an integrated school system where whites and Indians were there. And no one obviously was beaten or told that they had to get rid of their culture or any of that. So it's getting better. Um, and through sort of what I'll call affirmative action, more and more Navajo kids, and I'm assuming Indians all over the country, are getting opportunities to get college degrees, advanced degrees. Mm -hmm. uh, now you have 
what I consider a very well-educated intelligentsia that's on the reservation uh, that's very helpful. And uh, I work with the Navajo um, Nation office in D.C. Everyone there is very well-educated, very well-spoken, and very well aware of the challenges. Mm -hmm. We didn't have that when I was a kid. There just weren't very many people in the Navajo Nation that were educated, but they hadn't had the chance yet. And I'll say this, and it it sounds almost condescending, but I don't mean it that way. The Navajo kids I grew up with, the smartest, brightest, best kids in the world, the ones who got the opportunity to kind of get out of just living in a Hogan and being isolated, not speaking English, the ones that got out of that are top performers. My my friends that that were given those chances um, are running big programs, have done extremely well, including Mr. Kuntz's, my code talker uh, mentor. His kids are doing extremely well. The other kids I grew up, they're, they're, they're running huge things, right? Mm-hmm. The other kids... <clears throat> just went back to herding sheep and staying at home. They they weren't interested in that. So the big challenge for the Navajo people is getting more and more kids into that mainstream, getting them to want to become white, if you will, get educated, get out in that white Anglo world, master it and come back and help their own people. And I think that effort has been very successful. Um, you still have a lot of poverty issues, so a lot of those kids moved to Phoenix, Albuquerque, and um, can still get benefits. Mm-hmm. So there's still a challenge in bringing home well-educated Navajo kids, adults now, to serve on the reservation. That's still a challenge, but I think it's getting better every day. I, I, I'm glad it's moving in the right direction. I, I'm a strong believer in that in, in so many different ways and so many different um, aspects that hopefully more and more Navajo adults will go and help the next generation on and on. Amen. And there's a there they you know we're talking about an issue that's important. When I was a kid, I don't know that there was much focus on this. Today, there's tremendous focus on this. The leaders of Navajo Nation are very worried about the generations of kids that are coming up and what what they need to do in their lives. They don't discourage them from staying on the reservation. And I'm not suggesting they shouldn't. I wish they would because they need to be helping their own people right where they live. But their their struggles are tremendous. Infrastructure issues. Yes. Building roads, having good water. You've got a, a reservation the size of Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. It only has 12 grocery stores. So the, the tribal system and the series of things you have to go through to have any kind of free enterprise are still very, diff- very difficult. Well, I I want to say it's Seneca. I'm probably wrong. But I thought of you when I moved from California to here on the Cape because I stopped at a Native American reservation when I crossed the border from Ohio into um, Buffalo area, and I thought of our conversations and some of the lack that's still there, uh, and it's so not okay. 
And when people, you know, people want to just be, especially Caucasians and you know who you are, um, they just want to be dismissive, dismissive and say, well, the, this is the way they want to live. No, it's not. They have no choices. It's the best that they can do because of all, whether it's trauma, whether it's um, lack of means, and it, the list goes on and on. So yeah. best they can. I really felt, I remember something you said. We spoke uh, the first or the second time. Where if you go off the road, you go 20 minutes, it's still, you know, it's still bleak. And that's what I saw when I went there. If I were to put you in my car, which I would love to do sometime, and drive you into Fort Defiance and make you close your eyes, just close your eyes and let me drive for 10, 20 minutes. And I pull off on a side dirt road and say, Darren, wake up, open your eyes. Where are you? You might guess Afghanistan. Um, And, you know, I don't, I want to make sure the listeners know this. I'm not speaking ill of the Navajo people. I I want them to have better. I, um, they, I'm just never treated more fairly and inclusively than there in my entire life by the time I really got to know the kids there became part of them um, they treated you exactly the same and again in no other part of my life or time including now have I ever felt that um, those are the people there are amazing and I, I want to give you something that I think I could only give you this very week so I still get thousands of emails um, notes, reviews about my book. <clears throat> and last week I got two from Fort Defiance, the very village I grew up in or spent a lot of time in. <clears throat> and when I get one from right where I lived, I pay a lot of attention. So one gentleman said, I'm a full-blooded Navajo. <clears throat> I read your book and it spoke to me and I give it to all my friends. Well, that touches my heart because you cool. want to hear that a Native American <clears throat> who lived there felt this felt that the book spoke to them. He said, but I got to tell you something that even speaks to me deeper. My mother is full-blooded Navajo. My dad's full-blooded Navajo. But my mom remarried to an Anglo. And I have a brother that looks very, very white. He looks completely Anglo. When he goes to school, he's beat up and harassed exactly the way you were. When he read your book, he started crying. And um, I thought, wow, he said, they don't think he's Navajo. He looks white. And this is still a huge issue there. So I I wrote a letter back and I said, you know, I'm very touched by by what you said. I'm very sorry for what your brother went through and know how difficult that can be. And he wrote back and he said, yeah, but once my brother read your book, he felt like he had a friend, somebody who understood him, and every day's been better for him. And wow, brought a tear to my eye. But, you know, that's the legacy of that book and your experiences. It it has helped countless number of people already. You and I, especially you, will never find out how many people you help in generations um, by just telling your story and your truth. Uh, and, and that shows, well, first of all, that shows how important the written word still is, right? And and how important it is to be able to tell these stories before we all pass on and and um, 
I wanted to ask you, because when you were living there, and for those of you who, who haven't read The Pale Face Lie, please get it, please read it. Um, the first three listeners of this podcast who private message me, I will send you a copy on my dime, not on David's dime, on my dime. That's how important it is that you read this book. Um, but um, explain for you, because you thought you were Native American. You were told you were Native American. You have that one older um, young young man, young boy, uh, older boy, who was, who was really your, your uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was the person looking out for you. But yeah. What was that like in school? Like that kid, because the trial, you know, the, how'd you get through it? Well, you know, I had my first two angels. <clears throat> That's the way I was looking for. I had an, and Darren, I'll, I'll send you a hundred books for everyone you send out because that's so kind of you. <clears throat> um, You're a good man. I, um, I had an 80 year old Navajo woman. <clears throat> I think she was about eight. She was elderly. And during my darkest days, we're living on the part of the reservation called Mud Flats. <clears throat> Anglos aren't supposed to live there. So the Anglos that did live there lived in little compounds. Mm -hmm. but there was no housing for us. So where we lived, you weren't supposed to live. And it was bad news. <clears throat> right. And this 80-year-old Navajo woman who lived in a tiny little trailer across the street <clears throat> named Evelyn came over every day and would... She'd see me all beat up and my face all bloody, and she knew that I would never run from a fight because there's it, you, you can run, but you can't hide. Joe right, Lewis, so what, it's the worst thing you could do. So I fought every kid that would fight me, and I didn't start it, but I never ran from it because mm -hmm. I knew over time, the more you run, the more you get beat. You have to face what's coming your way. <clears throat> so when I would get home, she would see me all beat up, and she'd put her arms around me, wash get a warm washcloth and wash all the blood and start telling me stories about her life and she's the first person that showed me unconditional love because i didn't even have any concept of that before i met her and she started telling me stories about the navajo people and they were never spoken as if out of anger or hate like white people did this stuff there was never a hint of that she told me a story that her grandmother was four when she walked back from the long walk. So for the listeners who don't know, the long walk was when the Navajo people were rounded up by the U.S. Cavalry, marched 300 miles to an area that near Fort Sumner. And every one of them that was too slow, that couldn't keep up, I mean, there was no water, no food. They just shot them in the head and kept going. Think pretend death march people. Think pretend death march people. That's what this is like. Go ahead. It's just genocide. And four years later, when they came back, they did the same thing to them. And Evelyn's grandmother was four, and she had made it back from the long walk and raised Evelyn's mother, who raised her. And she said, I've learned in life that you have to have harmony in your life, and which is a juba in Navajo. And you have to have uh, grace and you have to understand that history is something to learn from. It's not something to hate from. And she would explain these stories to me 
while rubbing my face with a washcloth and putting her arm around me and trying to comfort me. And I was just, it was the most extraordinary experience of my life. <clears throat> I'm showing pure love from a person who had every reason to hate my guts and to hate everybody <clears throat> who did that to her, to her grandmother. But she had none of that in it. She didn't have an ounce of hate in her. <clears throat> and I just remember thinking every day how much I loved her. And I was always afraid to tell her because I was afraid she wouldn't say it back. <clears throat> but I knew she really loved me too. And then at the same time, <clears throat> the strongest Navajo kid that lived in the entire town, <clears throat> and he later became Golden Glove boxing champion, and he was a tough guy, <clears throat> and he ran a gang. He decided he liked me. <clears throat> so he approached me the first day walking to school, and I thought he was just going to beat me into a pulp. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> he didn't. I still don't know why Tommy liked me, but he did. <clears throat> and while we walked to school, when that finally happened, no one messed with me. <clears throat> and if somebody messed with me, they messed with Tommy. <clears throat> and that's not something you wanted to do. And right. so things like that started happening to me. <clears throat> and I gradually made Navajo friends. And then once we were there the third year, because they're used to people coming and going, period. Mm -hmm. um, I was treated like one of them. <clears throat> and in a book tour, this is another funny aside, but I think you'll appreciate it. About two and a half, three years ago, I did a book tour for the original book. Um, and one of my Indian classmates who lives in Albuquerque showed up at my book event and he said, I'm here just to see if you're still alive. He said, you got beat up more times than anybody I ever met, but it never got you down and you always fought back and you always found a way to get through it. He said, I had no idea that you were still alive. I didn't think you would survive your childhood. Right. And what's funny about him, he was Indian, but not Navajo, mm -hmm. half Indian and half Mexican. And there's little differences within the community that people, you know, the kids know. His mother drove him door to door from his house to his school. And his dad was a minister. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't get beat up. They he was so afraid of the kids. And if he ever got caught wandering off um, on, the, on a weekend or night, he got the stuffing beat out of him. Sure. And I told him, you, you got the stuffing beat out of you because you ran from the bullies. Exactly right. Never, never run from a bully. You know, yeah, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, we grew up in totally different type of environments. I grew up in Brooklyn and not nearly what you had to go through. But I remember my dad, tough Irishman, said to me one time, sometimes, Darren, to prove a point, you got to take your beating like a man. Just take your beating to stop running, take your beating like a man, and after a while, you'll gain their respect. But if they see you constantly getting in mommy's car to go from point A to point B, not good. Amen. <laughs> and you learn... You know, your dad learned these lessons the way I did. Mm -hmm. And they're tough lessons, but they're lessons for life. Um, I always found in my entire adult career as a lobbyist, nothing I learned more important than I learned as a child on the reservation. Every lesson I used every mm -hmm. day of my life, I learned it there. I didn't learn anything after that that was as powerful, as meaningful 
is growing up with Navajo kids in Port Defiance, Arizona, and in Gallup, New Mexico. So I'd, before I ask you a trauma question, it's very important, but um, I just want to ask you this question because I'm a big, as you know, history buff. I love films, movies, whatever. And I, I, you know, I've never been to Los Alamos. And I was just watching the movie. I thought it was brilliant, the Oppenheimer movie. I loved it, too. Yeah. If you could talk a little bit about that, where that is compared to Fort Defiance, and because he mentions that that area belongs to the Indians, and and um, talk a little bit about that. About the Indian kids I grew up with? I'm sorry, Darren. No, I was just, no, yeah, no, just about the movie, Oppen the movie Oppenheimer takes place in Los Alamos, and he mentions that that land really belongs to the Native Americans. Oh, yes, it did and does. <clears throat> so one of the interesting things about the Southwest in the area I live in, you'll have a white and Mexican intelligentsia and a lot of Navajos too, but they own the land. Mm -hmm. So they lease it to the government. And so just less than a mile from where Oppenheimer did the Manhattan Project, you have third world poverty. And so you're driving through this beautiful, stark desert beauty, which I find extraordinary. Mm -hmm. But you're seeing people who have almost no money everywhere around you. And they we spent all the money in the world for the Manhattan Project, which we should have and was mm -hmm. obviously won World War II for us. But you step outside those gates and you've got people who are a thousand percent poorer than the people inside the gates. Yeah, that's so not okay. And so. it's still like that. When I go back and I go back all the time, <clears throat> I'm in Gallup and Fort Defiance three or four times a year because I have to. I'm just drawn to it. Mm -hmm. I always go off the beaten path and I always hoped I see somebody <clears throat> in those areas that is more prosperous and better, but I don't. If you That's... get off the beaten path, you get away from where, and, and there's no fault. I mean, it's hard to spend money right on a reservation and solve all the problems. It just is. Mm -hmm. there's, they're just too many and too vast. But I still see the many remnants of the same problems I saw when I was a little boy. That's, un that's so unfortunate. I wanted to, add, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you a trauma healing question. Anything, and, Darren, anytime. I appreciate that. And I, I, I know there's no right answer for it. There's not a template. But you are able to use some of that trauma as a kid and turn it around while others have to keep it suppressed and bury it and they don't want to look at it or feel it ever again. How does how are you able to do that? If you can share that with our listeners. No, and, and I think you, you hit on the you're very good at what you do. You hit on the core part of the book. <clears throat> so when you're a kid, you don't know you're a kid, meaning you don't know, <clears throat> you know, your childhood is, you, everybody grew up like you, right? Until you get older. <clears throat> so my four siblings, I, I still look at how much damage was done to my sisters. Incredible. <clears throat> and And my brother too. For me, I almost compared to the tears of a clown. I turned every <clears throat> negative into a joke. I tried to talk to any adult who would talk to me. <clears throat> I acted out constantly. 
I did everything I could to not be the David Crow growing up in that house where your dad beat you with the buckle end of a belt until you couldn't move, your legs black and blue, blood pouring down your your legs, scared to death to come home. When I got outside that house, I tried to be the funniest guy in the world, the most adventuresome guy in the world, the most mischievous guy in the world. I tried to do everything to be something other than who I was to create something else. And in that trauma, I ran into the angels in my life, people who put up with me, who loved me, who opened doors for me, let me stay at their homes, fed me meals, gave me a safe place to go in the afternoons, coaches, people who own stores, classmates, parents. And what I really did with my trauma was create a self outside myself. I didn't know I did that, but that's been my, that escape, running, reading, and finding people that I could escape into save my life. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. And um, David, your book is helping so many people. I'm so happy that uh, we uh, had this conversation again. We're going to talk privately as we always do ongoing. Um, I'll let you know about those three books, but you don't need to send the other ones. You know, I appreciate no, I, that. But I thank want you. Your address. I consider yeah. you a friend for life. I want your, yes, listeners, you are. your listeners to know that you have access to me anytime you want. You're my friend, Darren. And you're my friend. And uh, I you appreciate you. I'm like tearing up. I, because without going into detail, trauma sucks. And uh, you, you live through it. And um, what what happened to, those pe- to the people that you lived with and you're part of that community sucks but it's a story that has to be told uh, and you're a good man. And thank you for sharing your time with us today. You're a good man too, Darren. Take care. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.